Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Thank you to everybody who participated and joined us for that. We had such a wonderful time, didn't we? Uh, It was so good. I told Cece, though, that we missed her because um, Cece has done with something, I guess, Cece, uh, for the parade this time. Something. Something, yeah, I... I, uh, I I told Bob and Cece what I missed was them fighting with the banner that they carry. It's uh, always so entertaining uh, on July 4th. So anyway, um, thank you to all of you who participated and helped us with that. You know, I haven't worn this jacket. It's really light since last summer. And I stuck my hand in the pocket, and guess what I found? Two men. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful to be where we're not having to mess around with that stuff? Hopefully, you know, hopefully we're done, right? We, we're, all, we're all hoping so. Well, today we continue our series in Genesis. For those of you that maybe guess, um, our worship time really isn't just one song. Uh, we actually, on Communion Sundays, have the, the talk, the sermon first, and then we uh, have worship as we uh, gather around the communion table. So we're going to talk today in our ongoing series about uh, Genesis chapter 1, and this summer we're spending our time on Genesis chapters 1 to 3, and we're still kind of stuck back at Genesis chapter 1, and today we're going to talk about the creation hymn, the creation hymn. Now, I have to warn you, there are points where it may be a little bit heady as we talk about a few things, and If you're into that thing, then enjoy it. And if you're not, just hang on. Don't go to sleep because we'll be back to something else that'll be, you know, more interesting uh, very shortly thereafter. So hang in with us. So in 1989, a man by the name of Alan Stern was a graduate student at the University of Colorado when Voyager 2 explored the outer part of our solar system, including photos of Jupiter and Saturn and their moons, and uh, went on to planets beyond that, but didn't make it as far as, they didn't make it as far as Pluto. And he was so upset because that had special interest to him. And so in the decade of the 90s, which followed, he appealed, six times he appealed to NASA to launch a a probe to Pluto, but alas, to no avail. It was interesting because the planet was actually found by an Illinois farm boy who was able to wander into and somehow convince that they should have access to the Lowell Observatory in Arizona. At first, it was called the new planet, and then there was a little girl, 11 years old, that thought about the Roman god and suggested that maybe Pluto would be a good name for that planet. And it's a god of the underworld, and it sort of thought it described a body at the edge of the solar system well. Well, a few months later, after the discovery of of Pluto, way back in the 30s, Walt Disney developed a character by the name of Pluto. Pluto, yes. And... uh, And I don't know, a few of you in here, I won't ask for a show of hands, but a few of you in here may remember the 1950s. 
And if you remember the 1950s, what was the first Frisbee called? A a Pluto player. Who said Pluto? Greg, good for you. Were you around in the 50s, Greg? Okay. Yeah, a Pluto platter. How cool is that? So Stern decided that it wasn't over yet because they ended up taking away, voting on, if you can believe it, voting on taking away the planetary status of Pluto to just make it one of the objects in the Kuiper belt that far out there. And so there was a, there was a pushback from lay people and a pushback from some other scientists and eventually NASA agreed to a probe heading out to Pluto. It was launched in 2006. It was called New Horizons, and it reached Pluto for its flyby in 2015, just seven years ago. And I've got 20 seconds of video from Pluto. Let's watch. There's no music, so you just see this incredible thing. It looks a bit like the moon, doesn't it? It must be, where it is in the solar system, it must be incredibly cold there. Interesting topography. It looks like it gets hit with stuff from space. Okay, so there there you have it. There's Pluto, and... Well, it's not technically a planet anymore. When I was young and had to remember the planets of the solar system, Pluto was the last one out there that we had to remember. I was a fan of the original Star Trek series. Uh, That says something about my age, that I was around when the original Star Trek series came out. And Captain James T. Kirk said, Space, the... My goodness. When, when, when Pastor Nancy leads us in the Lord's Prayer, would you please be as loud as you were just now? That would be, that would be great. Um, so it's truly fascinating when you think about space, and that's what we're going to talk a bit about today when we see the vastness of our solar system, let alone the vastness of the universe that keeps expanding. So as we began our series, we talked about how we approach Scripture and how we originally want to understand what it meant to those for whom it was originally written, and then we want to apply it across the centuries to us. Now, when we learn what it meant to those for whom it was originally written, we call that Exegesis, thank you. Was that you, Larry? No? Who was that? Oh, good, good, good. Well, whoever it was, um, good job. That's called exegesis. I was kind of hoping for a similar roar to what we had a few minutes ago. So let's see if you do any better on this one. So when we apply it now across the centuries to us, we call it... Yeah, much better, much better. Thank you. Thank you. That was, that was good. So we talked about the fact that we all read the Bible devotionally. And when we read the Bible devotionally, we just pick up the Bible 
and we read a passage and sometimes we begin by saying, Lord, speak to me through this passage, guide my life, give me wisdom on what I'm considering, what I need to deal with. So that's, that is very, very good and we should do it. And I believe that the Holy Spirit shows up and speaks to us in the middle of that when we read the Bible devotionally. But when we talk about exegesis and hermeneutics, that's when we dig a little bit deeper and we sort of dig into studying the passage in more depth. And God can speak to us that way as well. So what we're talking about in this sermon series is we're talking about exegesis. What did the passage mean for the original folks it was written to? And what does it mean for us? What's God trying to say to us? And this is perhaps nowhere more important than in Genesis 1 where we can approach the text with different agendas. And and I can't tell you how important it is to recognize that people have and do approach the text with an agenda and the agenda influences what they're going to get out of it. And what we need to do with exegesis is to try to approach the text with an open mind and allow the text to speak to us rather than taking our preconceived notions and saying what the text is going to mean. So we're going to spend some time doing that now and we want to understand what it meant for the recipients and we talked about that last week. We talked about the seven day pattern, Uh, we talked about the importance of creation, Uh, for the people of Israel. And we said that we believe in the authority of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We don't place ourselves above the Scripture and say this is true and this isn't true and this is true and this isn't true because essentially we make ourselves God when we do that. We're, We're the determiners of truth. We place ourselves under the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and say now what did it mean for the people to whom it was written and what does it mean for us today? So we're going to look together at Genesis 1 as the Word of God that was given to the Jews 3,000 years ago but has deep meaning for us today as well. Now when we look at Genesis we can take one of at least three approaches. I'm only going to mention three of them today and two of them I don't think are a good idea and one of them I believe is a very good idea. And the first one is that Genesis 1 is an example of ancient mythology from a Jewish perspective. In ancient Near Eastern literature, there are creation myths that have been described, the most famous of which which is the Enuma Elish from the Babylonians. And here is part of that where it describes beginning creation with two primary gods, one male and one female. This is how it goes. When the skies above were not yet named, nor earth below pronounced by name, Absu the first one, their begetter, and maker Tiamat, who bore them all, had mixed their waters together, but had not formed pastures, nor discovered reed beds. When yet no gods were manifest, nor names pronounced, nor destinies decreed, then gods were born within them. Now some want to say that Genesis is just the myth of the, of the children of Israel, of, of, of the Israelis. But, but in fact, it's so profoundly different than what I just read. The difference in the two stories is vast. One relates to the one God of creation, and the other talks about a pantheon of gods in the myth of Enuma Elish. The fact that the Genesis account is very different 
is a reflection of the work of God in creation in the context of Israel as a unique people of God. We have to reject this approach to Genesis because Genesis is far more than a regurgitation of ancient Near Eastern myths. The second thing I think we need to reject is that Genesis 1 is a scientific treatise of how creation took place. A couple of weeks ago, Mark Holland and I on the Pastors Forum, the the show that we do on uh, KCIS radio, interviewed Dr. Eric Agall. Eric is a committed follower of Jesus Christ and an astrophysicist at the University of Washington. Um, Those of you that were not in the first service, do you know what a physicist is? A physicist is the person that puts the bubbles in pop. Um, Okay. Uh, Kirk, I need need you to do the, yeah, okay. So, So Eric shared with us his perspective as a follower of Jesus Christ what it means to study the universe, to study the stars. Um, Eric actually found a, found a, a star out there and uh, does some incredible work. One of the things he looks at is whether there are other places in the universe where life might be able to be supported. But the point is, is that there's no conflict. Eric sees no conflict between his faith and his commitment to Genesis chapter 1 and his work as a scientist. So it's important for us to understand how this works out. And we talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago when we talked about how to understand the Scriptures. And that has to do with understanding in the Scripture what kind of literature we are dealing with. We find in the Scripture that there are different literary forms. Now I want to emphasize to you that The Bible is true. We believe it's the Word of God revealed to us, but in order to understand it, we have to understand the nature of the text that we're reading. And sometimes the text is meant to be understood literally, okay? And sometimes the text is meant to be understood from other perspectives because of the nature of the text. So in this case, um, we, we, we find that, uh, that, well, a couple of weeks ago, if you may recall, I read to you from Ecclesiastes, and do you remember when I read to you from, I think it was the New International Version, it was a little bit like, hmm, I wonder what he's talking about. And then I read from the message, and we had that very discouraging description of growing old. Remember that from a few weeks back? So in order to understand what it was talking about, we had to understand the nature of the literature. So let's talk about this uh, for just a moment. So we find in the scripture simile. Simile involves an explicit comparison of two unlike things using the word like or as. In Isaiah 53, we read, all we like sheep have gone astray. So we understand in that 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 the simile is comparing us to sheep in order to get across the idea of our own sinfulness. Metaphor involves direct or implied comparison of two things. So in uh, Psalm 100, we read, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Are we literally the sheep of his pasture? No. But that's what it's like for him to be the shepherd and for us to follow him. Remember Psalm 23 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So then we also have personification, and that is where we take human characteristics and apply it to an object. So in Job 28, we read, destruction and death say, we have heard a report about it with our ears. Well, destruction and death don't have ears, but the personification, in order to get the point across, gave them ears. Now here's a long word, anthropomorphism, and it's a long word that basically just describes taking human characteristics and giving them to God so that we understand who God is in a better way. Exodus 33, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then finally, there are extended figures of speech like the parables. So Jesus taught with parables. Now, some of the parables may be based on on incidences or stories that really happened, but they're, they're more along the lines of stories that Jesus uses to uniquely express a point to the people that he is talking to. They don't necessarily have to be rooted in the fact that it actually happened that way at one point in time, although it may very well have. The point is, is that it's illustrative of something that Jesus wants to illustrate. He frequently composed parables in his teaching ministry. You could check out Mark chapter 4, 34. He used them in response to very specific situations and challenges. So there are a lot more of these in the scripture, but for our purposes today, what kind of literature is Genesis chapter 1? Well, we know it's not a scientific treatise on how God performed the miracle of creation. Now, notice I didn't say it wasn't true. It is true. But its purpose is not to give us a scientific treatise. Notice on day one, we have the light separated from the darkness, but we don't have the sun and moon until day four. It's not a problem if the writer is trying to convey something other than a simple chronological account. Some have suggested that we approach it um, as the, from the God of the gaps perspective. So the things that scientists don't know, well, that's where God is. But the problem with that is that those gaps in knowledge get, get filled in over time. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago about Copernicus and Galileo, and they recognized the fact that the earth goes around the sun, not the other way around. And as a result, the church disciplined them And Galileo was forced to be in house arrest essentially until his death because he simply said what he actually observed, what turned out to be true. The church was again ridiculed in 1925 in the famous Scopes monkey trial in Dayton, Tennessee. John Scopes was a high school substitute teacher who taught evolution. And... uh, It was a violation of an act at that time called the Butler Act, and there was a trial. And in the trial, he was found guilty. But the world, in the American press and the international press, laughed and ridiculed the caricature of a trial that took place there in Dayton, Tennessee, mocking fundamentalist Christians and the people of Tennessee. So friends, it's important for us to come to terms with the fact that Genesis 1 is not a scientific paper. But it doesn't mean it's not true. It's addressing different questions. 
Science is concerned with the when and the how, and Genesis is concerned with the what and the who. So now having said this, there's some amazing scientific items of interest that affirm Genesis 1, that affirm the concept of a creator. First, consider the fact that God created the heaven and earth with a unity of laws that allow us to have science practiced at all. If we couldn't count on the laws that are worked into creation, um, we wouldn't be able to do science. We couldn't have hypotheses, uh, theories that we begin to work out to determine whether they're true or not because we couldn't count on consistency of things behaving the same way every time. Second, consider how finely tuned God made the universe. Any small variance in creation in terms of the light we get and the oxygen that we have in the atmosphere and the water that we have and so many different things, just being off a tiny bit would mean that human life and life in general would not be possible. It is extremely finely tuned.
and he is beautiful and radiant in all his splendor. Of you, most high, he bears the likeness. Praised be you, my Lord, through sister moon and the stars in heaven. You formed them clear and precious and beautiful. Praised be you, my Lord, through brother wind and through the air cloudy and serene and every kind of weather through which you give sustenance to your creatures. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and join me up here. Just about a hundred years ago, <clears throat> the English hymn writer William Henry Draper paraphrased <clears throat> this famous poem by St. Francis of Assisi. And he paraphrased it for a song that he wrote for a children's festival in England for Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Easter. He wrote it for a children's festival and it was published in 1919 in the public school hymnal in the United Kingdom and is now in 179 hymnals around the world. And I want to close the sermon as we transition into a time of communion with having all of us respond to the wonder of creation with worship. Let's join together in worshiping by singing the song, All Creatures of Our God and King. Let's stand together. So the story of Genesis continues, and it continues into chapter 3, in which we have the story of the fall. The story of Adam and Eve is our story. We were created with a free will. They were created with a free will. They chose to sin, to go in another direction, and we choose to sin and go in another direction as well. God needed to do something about this, and so he sent his son into the world to become the means by which our sins are forgiven. And so as we stand here, we stand with great joy in the knowledge that Jesus became the means by which our sins are forgiven. And our communion service, when we recognize his body broken for us and his blood shed for us, is when we say thanks. In many churches, it's called the Eucharist, which is the Greek word for thanksgiving. We give thanks for what our Lord has done for us. And so I invite you to join us this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us for communion. And in just a moment, I'm going to have you stand, and we're going to take a moment and look at our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with other folks and if we find that something is wrong in either of those directions, we have an opportunity in the quietness of our own hearts before the Lord to confess that and to make it right. And so I invite you to stand with me. And we are going to <coughs> take a moment for that. And then we are going to join together in a corporate prayer of confession. So friends, let's humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Let's join together in the corporate prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. 
We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and earnestly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. <clears throat> Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of his great mercy hath promised forgiveness of sins to all those who with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> the words of institution for our service are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. Paul writes, for what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us, for your blood shed for us. We thank you, Lord, that you bring us into a right relationship with God, that we can live lives of purpose, that you gave us from the very beginning and that Lord having lived lives of purpose in this time you invite us into eternal life with you and for that we give you thanks in Jesus name Amen we uh, invite you to join us as I said for communion um, we're going to uh, begin over here with Pastor Nancy uh, and then we'll move uh, to the center section and then finally uh, to the section off to my left uh, and you're right. Uh, please join in as the worship team leads us. The practice will be to come and take the communion elements back to your seat and during worship when you feel the moment is right to take the bread and the cup at that time. <clears throat> 